It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 11, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Teresa Podall from Prairie Road Organic Seed in Fullerton, North Dakota. Prairie Road Organic Seed is a small organic seed company where Teresa and her family grow all of the seed that they sell. These are vegetable seeds, right? And the seed sales go to gardeners, farmers, and seed companies. We talk about the history of the farm and how the seed company came about, the importance of breeding and selecting seeds in an organic production environment, and how Prairie Road has created a brand that is synonymous with quality seeds adapted to northern conditions. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. The podcast is also sponsored by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest in business management texts, farming essays, or all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get a free audiobook download and a 30 day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, everybody. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today, Teresa Podal from Prairie Road Organic Seed in North Dakota. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's so great that you could join us today. I would love it if you could start off by telling us about your farm and Prairie Road Seed and how, well, I'm interested in how you ended up on a on a vegetable seed farm in North Dakota, or maybe I'm interested in how the farm that you ended up on in North Dakota ended up being a vegetable farm, and how all of that fits into the larger family operation there. You know, it is sort of a long story in that, um, well, I married into the operation in 1984, and Prairie Road Organic Farm had been certified organic since 77. So I missed all the transition years. By this time, they were well on their way um, with uh, their organic farming methods and so forth. And um, when Dan and I came back to the farm in the fall of 85, um, we came with the intent of raising certified organic turkeys. They were a second-generation turkey farm. Their dad was a poultry specialist with North Dakota State University, and um, Dan and David grew up um, with a turkey breeding flock raising hatching eggs. And so the intent was that um, Dan's older brother, David, would operate the, the crop portion of the farm and that we would be the livestock producers um, raising a certified organic turkey flock. And so um, we started out, we, we applied for a LISA grant, a low input sustainable ag grant, which that program eventually evolved into the SARE program, the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program. And our application was based on developing this certified organic production system for for turkeys, for poultry. And the veterinarian that was on the review board basically said it can't be done. And we responded <laughs> by saying, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so we proceeded to develop the production system, um, the, the marketing. We went through USDA specialty claims labels um, and got a label. We couldn't put certified organic meat on the label because USDA hadn't defined uh, the standards for certified organic meat. And we couldn't even put that the grains that were grown were certified organic. Um, and, 
Anyway, long story short, we had to make the negative claims grown without antibiotics, grown with fed grains, grown without pesticides, that sort of thing. Oh. So, um, <laughs> That's like back in the dark ages was, of, of organic farming, isn't it? <laughs> And we are, the name of our farm was Prairie Road Organic Farm. At the very last minute when we were trying to get USDA to the Specialty Claims Division to approve our label, um, they um, two weeks before we were scheduled to process, we still didn't have our label, and they pulled on us that we needed to change the farm name. We needed to take organic out of our farm name because the word organic couldn't appear anywhere on the label. And, of course, that made us panic because, you know, by that time we had already had the, um, we had to have the the printing done and we couldn't redo the plates and get the printing done and get the bags in time to process our turkeys. So we ended up calling in um, our congressional delegation and within a day we had our approval. So... <laughs> <laughs> so that, funny how that works with the regulators, funny how that isn't does it? Work. Um, but at, at the time, um, well, we were able to produce turkeys for uh, 10 years under that production system. And we were using a small processing plant in North Dakota, and the processing plant went under um, about four weeks before we were scheduled to process our turkeys. They shut them down and. Um, we no longer had a processor, so we ended up processing at a cooperative that we still had um, membership in over in Minnesota, but um, what took a week worth of very hands-on processing at the small processing plant, they did in two hours. And I ended up calling all of our markets, which we had developed a relationship with for 10 years, and telling them, well, your turkeys are on their way, they're in the bag, but I don't know what you're getting because there were parts missing birds going into premium bags and vice versa, and it was it was just a mess. And so at that point, we made the very painful decision um, to discontinue our turkey production um, because you can't maintain a gourmet label, a gourmet line without having gourmet processing, <laughs> and we no longer right. have that. Yeah, and you really need that infrastructure to match the kind of the scale of your operation. Absolutely, I mean, that... and just one part of that chain missing, and it's it's gone. So, um, you know, 10 years of hard work developing our production system and our marketing and so f developing those relationships, and um, we were done. Um, our markets, interestingly enough, um, offered their customers a full refund if they were dissatisfied with their with their bird over the Thanksgiving holidays. And believe me, I know that there were customers that should have been dissatisfied and they got less than 10 back. So, wow. um, you know, that speaks to, um, the customer base. And, and for years we would get phone calls. Are you guys back in turkeys yet? <laughs> <laughs> People, you know, knew where their turkey came from and they wanted that turkey. And, um, Anyway, at that point, um, we became students of holistic resource management. We attended holistic resource management courses. We were not willing to leave the farm, and so we needed to reinvent ourselves and um, 
And so this is mid to late 90s, right? Right. Yep. This is mid 90s. Yep, 1996 to be exact. And um, so we knew we didn't want to leave the farm. We we had to make a transition. And um, I made the decision to take work off the farm um, while we transitioned into another enterprise, um, both giving us time to do so and figure out what we wanted to do and then also to... Um, you know, develop an enterprise that could eventually support us again. And so I took a job with Northern Plains Sustainable Ag Society and was their executive director for almost 10 years. And I wouldn't take that back um, for anything because the challenges of managing a nonprofit organization are very similar to the challenges of managing a farm. I've and, spent a lot of time in the nonprofit world, and I've certainly found that to be the case. I mean, they're, yes. they're just, they're not that different, oddly enough. Right, mm-hmm. right. And, um, you know, the skills and relationships that I was able to build um, in that position was was just absolutely phenomenal. And um, after 10 years of serving as their ED, um, in the meantime, um, Dan and David had took over full operation of the farm and um, our enterprise was to start building the organic seed business and um, David was an amateur breeder plant breeder Um, he had bred a number of varieties uh, for our own use for our own table um, on the farm just as a as a hobby Um, he just loved working um, with Vegetables and gardening has always been the central focus of the farm, which is for a lot of farms, it's, it's, it has almost been an afterthought. I grew up on a farm um, and the, the vegetable garden was my mother's purview. Um, she took care of it exclusively and did a lot of canning. Um, my parents were immigrants from Holland. They came over in 1959. So we were the first generation born here. and. I grew up on a certified seed potato farm, so very um, conventional system of agriculture. I left for college um, with my mother's admonition to never, never, never marry a farmer ringing in my ears. (laughs) And I was, I I fully concurred at that time. It was like, get me out of here. I'm, I'm gone. (laughs) Um, spent the summers, you know, working while my friends were at the lake, kind of that kind of um, situation. And um, I always felt like I was missing the party, but I realized now that no, I would. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I left for college and um, met Dan at North Dakota State University and um, ended up marrying a farmer. So that's how I came to be on the farm. And um, so getting back to the the seed operation, um, you know, I grew up on a farm where the garden was, you know, certainly an integral part of the family's living, but it wasn't part of the farm per se. Um, It was considered women's work. And I married into a farm where I was the interloper. The the garden was... um, 
the central focus of the farm and um, David and Dan managed the garden and I learned. <laughs> and so were, were David and Dan selling produce from the garden when you came to the farm? Was that actually, no. I mean, was that an, so it was, it was a focus of the farm, but it was still an internal focus. An internal focus of feeding ourselves first and, and also a focus of the level of sustainability in the garden was the yardstick for the rest of the farm. Um, if we, the garden was the teacher. If we could learn how to farm as as sustainably on our crop acreage as we did in the garden, we were doing well. <laughs> that was and, the yardstick. And, and this is North Dakota, so when we're talking crop acreage, we're talking some usually some pretty serious acreage on a, on a North Dakota farm. Yeah, our farm is, is 480 acres, so um, it's it's just three quarters. So by North Dakota standards, a very small farm. And so the, the family gardens were, um, there's two gardens, what we call a South Garden and the East Garden, and, and they're both quite sizable. They're in a, a deep mulch system um, of farming where we add a deep layer of mulch, um, every June before the hay goes to seed, before the grass goes to seed, we hay it and we haul it into the garden in small square bales and we spread it between the rows of young plants um, before they're very tall so that we can work between the rows um, with ease. And so they both get a thick layer of mulch um, every year. We used to do it every other year, but the biological activity in the garden has ramped up to the point where those soil microbes are able to um, those soil microbes are able to chew up that mulch in a year, whereas it used to take two. Wow! <laughs> so yeah, they um, it's it's a very um, the the tilt of the soil and the soil organic matter in that garden is just beautiful. So um, I had said that David had bred a number of varieties um, for our own use, and we started working as contract producers with other certified organic seed catalog companies. We were growing large quantities of um, seed, um, so we're talking hundreds of pounds of seed um, every year for garden seed catalog companies. And um, so we were working with just a handful of companies and um, growing sizable volumes for them. And, we, and were these your own, your own varieties that you were, that you were growing first. at that time? Okay. Not at first. So we you, were contracting. They would um, tell us what they wanted us to grow. They would send us the stock seed of that. And by stock seed, you know, the, the seed to plant, to raise whatever it was they wanted us to grow. And um, so we were, we were basically volume producers at that point. And um, we began introducing the varieties that we had developed to these seed companies, asking them to trial them, you know, after we had gained um, a relationship with them and they knew that we could produce high quality stuff. Then we began in introducing them to our own varieties and a number of them were 
were picked up and carried by multiple seed catalog companies. And, um, but we were still growing as contract producers. So we were getting, you know, the wholesale price for, for that seed. And we were cruising along pretty well, pretty comfortable. I had my off-farm job and Dan was, you know, building the size of his contracts every year and growing more, more diversity every year. And, um, and then we lost one of our contracts and we had negotiated the contract through the fall and the winter and came to the spring where we should have been re- getting our shipment of stock seed and the seed wouldn't show up and it wouldn't show up. And we called about both the contract and where was the stock seed and we need to get stuff started and no response. And, you know, at this point we had already allocated that acreage. It was too late to go back and renegotiate contracts with other seed companies for that production. And so we ended up just losing out. I mean, we, we had a very short year that year. And that was when we started to question, um, you know, risk management, that this, this was not um, a reliable or sound way to, to operate the farm and having, it's sort of like the nonprofit world. If you have a small number of very large donors, they make you very comfortable, but it's not very sustainable because if any one of those large donors fails to donate, um, one year, then your budget is in trouble. So very yeah, similar and that's something situation. you may or may not. Yeah, and it may be something you don't even have any control over. Exactly. Um, Whereas if you have a large number of small donors who, you know, give, if a few of them drop out every year, you're going to be able to gain, you know, small donors a lot more easily than you do large donors. So it was a very similar situation, What's go- what was going on, you know, on the farm and and what I was learning in the nonprofit world. And so we decided that we needed a large number of small customers, not a small number of large customers. <laughs> and besides right. that, um, our children were getting older. We were getting older. Our labor force was leaving at that time. Um, we and, and still to this day, we do not hire any outside labor. Our youngest child is now a senior. And so our days of growing large quantities of um, any one particular variety were, in in our eyes, that wasn't sustainable either. Um, in terms of of you know our labor force and also just the physical ability to do the work, um, doing a hundred pounds or two hundred pounds of cucumber seed where you're doing cucumbers for a whole week and doing the same repetitive motion for a week straight just did not sound appealing. And um, so we've been working to diversify our customer base by offering, um, we started out with all of the varieties that we bred on our farm, offering those direct from the farm. And, um, also offering the our favorite varieties that we grew out um, over our years as contract producers, and um, 
stayed safe stock seed of that and had been adopting adapting those varieties to our growing conditions here in North Dakota, um, we felt that we could offer a valuable service to vegetable producers, um, both gardeners and market growers um, in the northern tier of the country in trying to garden in northern climates. So... Right. With the, the short season and, and, uh, and well, yeah, I guess really just the short season, I imagine your summers are plenty hot there in North right. Dakota, yep. but there's just not much of them. Right. You know? Our, you know, we do have stretches where we, um, have very hot, humid weather here. Um, we also can get very hot and dry, which is what we're experiencing now. Um, and everything in between, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and part of, my work with the Northern Plains Sustainable Ag Society was working with what we called the, the Farm Breeding Club. And so we were working with mostly field scale crops, um, looking at adapting varieties to organic production systems and also um, our short growing season here in North Dakota, um, working to further diversify organic crop rotations. And um, so one of the um, premises of the Farm Breeding Club and our farm both is that with the challenges we're facing with climate change, we needed to be adapting varieties, working with varieties, um, having very diverse production systems so that um, we would be able to make the curve. Um, we needed both genetic diversity within our crops and genetic diversity within our cropping systems. So um, we needed varieties that were not bred for uniformity, but were bred with diversity in mind and with adaptability in mind. The more uniform a variety, the less ability it has to adapt to change. And most of the crop varieties, um, and I would say um, even this is true in our vegetable world as well, they're bred for uniformity. Well, uniformity is great in terms of marketing, not so great in terms of production and facing variable cropping um, weather conditions. So it really depends on, I think, yeah, what what's the outcome that you're looking for, right. you know, and, and it is that if, if what you need is, is to be able to, to crank out uh, 20 pound cases of five by six tomatoes, you kind of do need some, um, you need a lack of diversity in that case. You need that, you need that uniformity in your tomato crop. But if you're, if you're thinking about feeding your family or you're thinking about filling CSA boxes, it might make more sense to have something that has that a little more genetic flexibility in it. Right. And in, and in terms of, you know, we've, we've had the luxury of having um, very stable climates um, in terms of, of the predictability of the growing season from one year to the next. Um, you know, I grew up in small grains country and you rely on August being, you know, dry and um, the conditions being perfect for a small grain harvest. And that has not been the case in the last 10 years or so. And um, very, very 
unpredictable weather patterns. And um, one of the things that we do on our farm to ensure adaptability is that we do not irrigate any of our production. It's all dry land farming. The plants have to make it on their own. If they can't go find the water, then they just don't make it. And those individual plants, the seed is not produced and it's not saved. So we're constantly uh, adapting the varieties that we're producing to be able to perform regardless of what Mother Nature throws at her. I always think that's a really interesting thing when, when you, whenever you're looking at at a seed saving environment and you guys are actually in a position where you're not, you're not only producing seed in North Dakota, but you're, you're breeding seed and maintaining breeding stock in North Dakota, which means that every year you're, you're adapting to exactly what you're encountering, you know, whereas, you know, somebody I know, like I used to work in the carrot breeding program at the university of Wisconsin, and we would, we would do our selections sometimes in Wisconsin, but the carrot seed would be grown. Uh, the actual, you know, seed production for the stock seed was happening in Eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you weren't, I mean, there's a, there's definitely a mix there between where it was grown versus where it was bred and the kinds of places that it was adapted to. Right. So I think it's, it's interesting that you guys are doing all, all of that, all of that genetic work and all of that selection is happening within one context, which I don't think is very common right. out there in the seed production world. Yeah, no, it isn't. And, you know, part of the reason why we decided that we needed to produce our own seed was um, we wanted to be able to to grow a good mix of varieties and um, and be able to save the seed from all of those um varieties that we were stewarding and constantly adapting them to what was going on. Um, you can, it's, it's difficult to have varieties that are well adapted if they're not grown within that environment. So um, very similar to one of the premises of the Farm Breeding Club was that if you want varieties that perform well in an organic production system, you have to breed them and select them within an organic production system. So what we were doing with the vegetable crops, the Farm Breeding Club has been working on doing with our field scale crops. And um, what isn't a good production year is always a good selection year. So last year we had an experience with our vining crops. So these are all of our cucurbits, the the melons, the cucumbers, squash. um, They were at about the four leaf stage and we had a south wind, a hot, dry wind, for three days and the wind averaged about 45 miles an hour with gusts 60 to 70 miles an hour. And so the, the little plants are out there like kites, you know, being twirled around, um, with the wind and, um, just had to undergo this for three solid days. And I tell you, it winnowed that those plots quite aggressively. Mother Nature was doing her best to help us with her, the selection work. Anything selection, that, selection for stocky plants. For stocky you know, plants yeah. with strong stems. Anything that, you know, had any weakness to it at all succumbed. And, and of course, we were 
literally helpless to do anything about it. And the other thing that happened with that hot, dry wind from the south is that here come all of the beetles for the corn rootworm. So it's a striped yellow and black little beetle, and they love cucurbits. And so anything that didn't succumb to the wind but maybe got damaged and was now weakened and struggling now got hit with with a beetle from the corn rootworm. And believe me, they they were plentiful, and they were there the entire season. So only the strong survived last season. We did the good news is that there were plants that were extra hardy, extra stout, um, extra disease resistant, extra insect resistant, and we were able to harvest that seed. And so, like I said, very, very poor production year. I mean, in terms of production, it was miserable. So as market growers, we'd have really been in hurt bag. But as right. you know, um, seed purveyors ourselves, it gave us the opportunity to you know, that selection work, that seed is so extremely valuable to us because now what we plant back for years to come is going to be that much more able to tolerate those plagues. So um, that's the kind of work that we're engaging in and the kind of value that we hope to bring back to, to the people that are growing our seed. Well, and I think you just, I mean, you really hit on an important point there that, that it's, it's a matter of breeding and selecting in that organic production environment and right. in that environment that has the sorts of challenges that the grower is going to face. In a lot of ways, where you, where you do the final grow out of the seed doesn't really matter. Like you said, you're going to have generation after generation that has been, because in this last generation, it was harshly selected for disease resistance and, and, and stocky, sturdy plants. That's going to, that, that selection pressure is going to resonate through multiple generations afterwards, even if you took it and grew it in Florida. Correct. You know? Yep. Uh, so I, I think that's, it's something I think that we're oftentimes missing when we talk about, when we talk about organic seed production, it's not just a seed production system. It's a seed development system that we really need to be happening in the organic community. Correct. Yep. And, and, and it, location does matter and um, the growing conditions do matter. And, you know, as organic producers, we totally get that. We, we understand that on our own farms. And so it's a matter of projecting that back to, to say, okay, what's, what is the source of my seed? And where was that seed actually grown? And, you know, one of the things that, that doesn't happen in organic seed production is, is that knowledge of where was that seed produced? You know, if you, if you shop most certified organic seed catalog companies, that information is not there for you. As contract producers, you know, I can tell you what companies are carrying our seed. Um, you know, the varieties that were bred on our farm are pretty identifiable. So you know where that seed was grown for the most part. Um, but it's all open pollinated seed and, um, you know, other, other producers could be grazing that seed as well. So you don't necessarily know where that seed was grown. 
Um, so one of the things that sets our farm and our seed business apart is that that open transparency of where that seed was produced and how it was produced. And I think that's that's a really important thing that um, needs to be part of all of the organic seed that is grown and produced is that is an understanding of where it was produced and under what growing conditions, because that does matter um, for the market grower and for the gardener to to know where that seed was actually produced. Now when you're direct now so your direct marketing and wholesaling your seeds now right. are are your varieties I mean when you when you sell the seeds directly to grow, to people who are growing them is that primarily home gardeners or are there also market gardeners and market farmers in the mix there? Yeah, there's there's certainly both. Um so we're we're selling to both primarily gardeners, I would say, um, market gardeners um, to a lesser degree at this point. Um, although I, you know, that's could very quickly change. I know it's it's certainly changing at this point. So, um, but yeah, we've continued to um, contract, do some contract production with other seed companies and certainly do wholesale our varieties to other seed companies. So Dakota Black Pop, for for instance, um, has been very popular. Um, and and that's, a, that's a popcorn variety, that's a right? That's a popcorn variety, right. Right. And um, Uncle David's Dakota Dessert Squash, Dakota Tears Onion, Sweet Dakota Rose Watermelon, um, and Sweet Dakota Bliss Beets, um, those have all gained popularity um, and we sell both um, packets and wholesale. So other seed companies um, buy our seed wholesale from us. So something that I found interesting when I was looking through your catalog, Teresa, is they you don't have, it's not like you've got lots and lots of different varieties of squash and lots and lots of different varieties of beets. And of course, if you're growing your own seed, it becomes much more difficult even on 400 acres to, right. to create effective isolation between two different beet varieties, for example, because beets are, are, and obviously you know this, but I'm just saying this for the general audience mm-hmm. here that, that the beets, beets are wind pollinated. So, you know, I mean, 400 acres isn't, isn't much isolation for a serious, for, for two serious beet grow outs. How, yeah, and I'm and I'm just really interested. I mean, it's making those kinds of choices about about limiting your business and limiting what you can do with it. I mean, obviously, you're not going to be offering five different beet varieties in your catalog, right? Under and, your current model, right? And so, one of the ways we can do that isolation, um, especially with cross pollinated crops, is by time. So, one year we might grow one beet. Um, and and beets are biennial, so you have to grow the beets for them in the first production year, plant them back the next spring, plant back the actual beet the next spring and, and allow it to go through its seed production stage. Um, so, so beets and onions um, and carrots are also biennial, so you, you have to store the roots over the winter and plant them back the next year. And so one year, for instance, we, we could potentially grow Sweet Dakota Bliss beets, the beets themselves, and, um, and be growing another beet 
for seed, you know, taking that other beet through its seed production cycle while we're raising the beets um, for Sweet Dakota Bliss. And then those beets will go through their seed production cycle the next year, and we would be producing the beet roots of the other beet that year. So, So you can you know, have both beets in production, but just in a different cycle. And so potentially we could do two beets that way. Um, And, you know, the same with, with our squash or our cucumbers, you can carry more than one cucumber, but you have to only raise one in a given year and raise enough seed to be able to offer that for two years so that you can produce the next cucumber, um, the next year. So, so you're right. It, it certainly is a limiting factor. Um, and, and that's why we need more seed producers. Um, we can only steward so many varieties and keep them isolated, as you say, but also keep doing the selection work for the stock seed. So one of the ways we do that is before we harvest anything, we identify the very best plants, the very best fruits from those plants, and we we set those aside and save the seed from those separate from our production seed. So there's the stock seed, which is what we say call the seed for the seed. That's the elite seed that we save every year and plant back the next year. So we're constantly doing that selection work and that improvement work. And then there's our production seed and our production seed is the seed that actually goes into the packets. So we're making the improvement, you know, we're always a year ahead in terms of the improvements that are being made on the varieties that we carry um, because that then gets planted the next year and then you gain the benefit of it from that harvest, the following harvest and that production seed. So um, it's an ongoing cycle and in order to do a good job and properly steward these varieties that are under our care, um, we can only do that with so many varieties. That's, it's a, yeah, it's the selection. And I think this is something that a lot of seed savers really underestimate is the amount of work that goes into, into being able to select for the traits that you want to select for that, that having both the, the adequate population size that you can, that you can then winnow down without causing right. inbreeding depression. And then also just the, the, the work and the skill set that it takes to walk through and and see exactly what it is that you're dealing with on those crops and to make sure that you're not just, you know, you're not selecting just the good looking spinach or the good, well, let's do the beets and not selecting just for the good looking beets, but also selecting for the beets that have the right flavor as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And see that's the selection work piece of it is something that, you know, as a contract producer, if I contract with a seed company to produce that variety, most of the seed companies do not ask you as their seed producer to go through and select stock seed. And the stock seed that we received most often is just plain production seed. Nobody's done the selection work on it. You receive the seed. It's the same bin run seed that you, that they're using to pack it and sell to the gardener. So 
we have, for the seed companies that we were producing for, we would tell them, okay, but if you want us to grow this variety, we would like to do the stock selection work for it. We'll save the stock seed for it. And then we'll have that available to you as an improved uh, you know, as improved variety versus just doing the straight production for you. Some of the seed companies would actually pay you to do that work. Others would not. But we're the exception to the rule. Most seed producers are con- straight-up contract seed producers. They're producing for production, not for selection. So most of the open pollinated varieties are not undergoing that constant selection work. It's almost like you could say that they're 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 producing seeds rather than producing a variety. Right. Where you it's guys are really volume. about producing a variety. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so as a as a you know as a production, if I'm contracting and I'm the contract producer, I am being paid on my production. So I'm not going to go through and rogue out every plant that I think looks a little weaker than the next one, for instance. It's not going to pay me to do that because now I'm roguing out my production. See? So... Right. So and you don't, it's there's not like no you get a higher incentive price. built into that program to be doing the maintenance and improvement work on those varieties. You're just doing straight up production. Right. So right. that was one of the reasons why we decided to start marketing our own seed is because we can see the need to do that constant variety improvement work. And just, you know, we, we don't grow all of the seed that we grow in our own gardens. So we still buy seed off the shelf. And one of the things we struggled with for years was find, finding a carrot that was true to type, that stored well over the winter, that tasted good. Um, just finding a high quality carrot. So, you know, we've seen the erosion that is going on in terms of the quality of the varieties that are available to us because nobody's doing the selection work. And part right. of the and especially they're not being oh, paid to do the selection work. It's not right. their job. Well, and I think a lot of times it, it doesn't even pay as a as a seed company uh, that's maintaining the stock seed to do the selection work because the the money's not there in if you don't have the flash of a of a hybrid variety with special traits. I mean, if you have if seed company A is selling a scarlet nance carrot and seed company B is selling a scarlet nance carrot that's that is significantly sweeter and significantly more maybe more uniform in in in, in how the roots are shaped and has those nice blunt tips that customers really like to recognize with those nance varieties, but they how do you say that? I mean, it's kind of like selling CSA shares in the wintertime. I mean, in, I, I know that in the wintertime, everybody's CSA shares are abundant and, uh, and flavorful and fresh. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and, and that's when people are making the purchases when they're looking at a picture in the seed catalog, not when they're actually seeing what the seed looks like once they grow it out. Right. So I can see where there's a real, there's a real disincentive for, for seed companies to do the kinds of maintenance work that's really necessary on those open pollinated varieties. Right. Right. There is. And, you know, the the incentive is both um, in terms of being able to offer high quality seed and have people come to recognize 
that your brand is synonymous with quality. So, so that's sort of the niche that we want to carve out, but not just, not just quality, but also that it's well adapted to Northern growing conditions. So, um, you know, the, the fact that we're continuously doing that selection work, but, you know, um, part of the reason why we're doing that is I, I think that really needs to be the standard for certified organic seed production. And we're certainly not the only company that is working on doing selection work and variety improvement. Um, I just, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be more. And that, well, so throw, that there will so, be um, the willingness on the part of seed companies that are contracting with seed producers to pay for that work because that's what's necessary. Well, and again, I think that's where as, as, as seed buyers, we have an obligation to support the people that are doing a really good job and who, who are building that reputation on quality because that's, that I think is a, it's a virtuous cycle that just keeps increasing the available of good, the availability of good quality seed. Um, if you're always shopping for bottom dollar, you're always going to get bottom dollar. It's just like, just like when you're choosing whether you're going to buy organic food or conventional food at the grocery store. Right. Yep. That's very true. Yeah. And, and that, that, um, issue of adaptability and adapting to, um, not only a changing climate, um, and, um, growing conditions on individual farms, but also, you know, what your production system is. And, um, so, you know, with with open pollinated varieties, it it allows us the opportunity to make those improvements and be able to adapt varieties to specific conditions. Um, the problem with with hybrids and the reason why our seed company doesn't carry hybrids hybrids is that you truncate that process. You can't plant back a hybrid and have it be true to type in the second year. Um, whereas open pollinated seed, you know, what, what you planted the previous year is what you can expect to grow when you plant that seed back. If you save that seed and plant it back, you can expect it to look like it did the previous year. Um, not so with hybrids. And so hybrids, even though it, it does, like you were saying earlier, offer that, um, value in terms of very predictable uniform production, it doesn't offer you the ability to adapt those genetics to your farming um, production system, your growing conditions, and to a changing climate. And uh, our philosophy is that that's going to be very, very necessary, um, not only valuable, but critical to our production systems in the very near future. Teresa, I'm going to break in here for a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. When you talk to Carl Hammer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job, produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume. And you know what? As a farmer, I provided a premium product that also had to do a really hard job, produce healthy customers in an environment that wasn't always the healthiest place to be. But I was always surprised at how little customers were willing to pay for something that literally became a part of them. 
I felt like the artistry and the care that I took in producing the food that I offered for sale and through my CSA showed through in the quality and that relative to just about anything else my customers were buying, it represented a pretty small cost. When I started farming, I was just like my customers, though, when it came to potting soil, and I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil, even though it was expensive in terms of my own time. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges that we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave things a second look. And when I gave it that second look, I came to the fairly obvious conclusion that success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there. And that just like the rest of farming, that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in. The cost of your potting soil isn't in significant, but it's a small cost relative to plant material, heat, and labor. And if the media fails, the rest of the enterprise is a sunk cost. So get the media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. I recently stumbled onto an older book by Michael Pollan from back before he became such a media star, The Botany of Desire. And when I read this book years ago, I loved Pollan's take on the relationship between domesticated crops and the humans who domesticated them or who were domesticated by the crops themselves. And it's and this this version is read by one of my favorite narrators, Scott Brick, who brings a certain drama to the social history of the plants and the natural history of our relationship with them. I've been fascinated by the power of the spoken word for most of my adult life. And Brick's reading brings an entirely new power to an already great book. I'd really encourage you to check it out for free at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. So tell me a little bit more about about how you actually go about the the physical processes and, and the management processes of producing seeds. Because, I mean, I know um, I spent a couple years managing the gardens at Seed Savers Exchange here in Decorah and, you know, growing out uh, thousands of varieties of seed every year and dealing with very small quantities of it. So mm-hmm. we had, you know, and I think there's a lot of people that have had some experience, you know, saving tomato seeds from, you know, from a few plants. But when you're starting to deal with commercial scale seed production, you gave the example of, of cucumbers earlier. Mm-hmm. How did you guys, how did you learn First of all, how did you learn how to do that? And then how how is that different from just producing a cucumber? Because a cucumber doesn't have any any viable seeds in it. You're looking at almost it's almost a different crop entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're taking it well beyond um, the production that you normally would use if you were just producing for for you know the edible fruit. So um, you know part part of what we do when is especially when we were contract producers we learned very quickly that if if you're a new kid on the block that be careful what you decide to grow for a seed company because usually they'll they'll offer their new growers the varieties they have trouble getting other growers experienced growers to grow and usually <laughs> there's a reason for that because either they're they don't produce a lot of seed um, there are certain tomatoes, for instance, that produce very few seeds. Um, maybe the first few fruit sets have absolutely no seeds. So, um, you know, it takes a while for you to, you, know, you, you end up harvesting a lot of fruit to produce a pound of seed, for instance. 
So um, one of the things that we've learned very quickly is that if you're taking on a variety that you have no experience with, you better grow it in the garden first and understand the variety before you decide to grow it on a field scale. So um, sort of like, you know, any farm um, enterprise, anytime you do something new, you want to start small. You don't want to make a mistake on a large scale um, as an experiment. <laughs> so right. same thing with varieties, you know, that we grow. We always experiment with them first, trial them first, um, eat them, take them through their, their seed production, um, their fruiting, their entire fruiting um, process so that you understand exactly how much seed you can expect from a plant, um, you know, when to harvest, how long, you know, whether or not can, you can, it can even make it through the seed production system in your environment. Like I said, we have a short growing season here. You want to make sure the variety can make it even if they even if the packet says that, you know, it's 60, 65 days, you better be sure. So especially when you get into stuff that's like 95 days, um, then you start to play with, with the edges of your, your growing season. So gaining experience with varieties first um, has been okay. a real key. And then based on, on that experience to design your production system. So most of the um, seeds, most of the varieties that we deal with, um, other than the tomatoes and the Dakota Tears onion, are direct seeded. So we direct seed everything um, other than our onions and our tomatoes. So, um, and even our onions, we're experimenting with direct seeding those to see if they can actually um, make it to full maturity direct seeded versus starting in the greenhouse. So, um, we anticipate that may take some selection work to get there, but we think it might be possible just from our experience with Dakota Tears onions. So, um, knowing your varieties is just a critical part of of seed production. Um, so we we start um, onions about the at the end of March, and tomatoes about mid April. So we'll be starting our we just started our tomatoes here this last week, and we have a few more that we want to start yet tomorrow. So just getting started with our tomatoes about six weeks okay. before we want to put them out. Everything else is direct seeded largely at the end of May. So um, we map out all of our spaces and um, we, we separate each of our varieties with our corns. So our popcorn or our sweet corn or our flint corn um, is planted in between like the squash and cucumbers, for instance. And part of the right. reason why we do that is for wind breaks and, you know, it just um, makes for a good rotation system for us. So we have about, we have 30 acres dedicated to our seed production and about one third of that is in production every year. The other two thirds is in cover crop. So we have a three year rotation, two years in cover crops and third in production. And part of the reason why we do that is to um, maintain the soil fertility at peak levels. 
Um, we're interested in producing high quality, very vigorous seed. And in our experience, the way to do that is is to have a very good rotation system and to ensure that soil health. So um, we also are very vigilant on those 30 acres to never, never, never let a weed go to seed. And so we, we um, very vigilantly weed our seed plots. We're out there almost on a daily basis. Um, it's one of our daily chores is to walk the fields. And um, one tip I would offer to people who are um, looking at trying to emulate that mantra of never letting a weed go to seed is get them when they're little. So a couple, three days after a a nice warm rain where you know weed seeds are germinating, get out there and take care of them. And if you get them when they're little, um, you you can bury a weed that's just sprouting. I mean, it's very simple, very easy to get them when they're small. Gets much more difficult with each with each passing day. <laughs> well, and of course, if you're doing that seed crop that has that much longer that it's going to be in the field, that's that much longer that a that your seeds that or the, that your weeds that do make it to size have to produce viable seed, and right. they'll continue. I mean, most of our most of our weeds are actually. They're, they're what, if, if they were a tomato, we'd call them indeterminate. They just, they'll keep on cranking out weed seeds for as long as you let them do it. Right. Uh, yep. You know, so you're just, yeah, you've, you're just running that much more of a risk, I think, with that. Yeah. A, one of the more difficult system. things about, about weed control has been, um, you know, it, it's very easy to do weed control on black dirt. It's much more difficult when you start planting cover crops and you've got a cover crop planted, um, that's going to take you through the fall season, um, and so you you don't intend to do any more tillage in that particular field um, for the rest of the season, and you get a warm fall rain where now you have weed seeds germinating. And um, some of those weeds are less of a threat in terms of um, actually producing seed um, due to the competition from the cover crops, others are more of a threat. And so the, just to, as we were talking earlier about knowing the varieties that you're growing, also know your weeds, know what weeds right. are in which fields and um, understand their their growing cycles and their seed setting habits and make sure that they don't go to seed. <laughs> So now, we've you, been able to eliminate a lot of the weed pressure just by absolute maintenance for, you know, our, our seed production systems or our seed acres have been in in that kind of a maintenance program since 97. And you would be amazed at, um, you know, how much the pressure has gone down. So if you stick to that mantra, it's, it's worth it. it. It'll pay you back. If we put new ground into production, know that you're going to be doing a lot more weed control on that new ground. Right. Yeah. Right. Now that, that 10 acres of, of seed production. So if I understood correctly what you were saying earlier, that doesn't include your, your stock seed production. That would just be for your actually making, 
making lots of making lots and lots of seed to sell as opposed to being the place where you're actually doing the development of the varieties. Well, so so our stock seed production systems vary a little bit with our crops, like our, our onions, for instance, Dakota Cheers onion. Um, the, the stock seed production system for that is um, we, we grow the onions in, in our actual garden for our stock seed. And... Um, and then we, we harvest that, we bring it in over the winter. And part of our selection criteria for Dakota Tears onion is storability throughout the winter until the next growing season. And so anything that starts to sprout automatically gets culled and that gets eaten over the course of the winter. And only the ones that remain completely dormant, completely firm, have the perfect shape that we want for Dakota Tears onion, um, gets, gets saved through through the course of the winter, and then gets planted back again in our garden um, the following year. So um, our stock seed for our onions is largely done in our family garden. Now the rest of the varieties, um, that's all done on a field scale. And so the first thing that we do before we harvest any crop is to go through and select the very best of the best. So our watermelon, for instance, we go through okay. and select, um, we'll, we'll comb through the, the patch looking for the early ripening ones, flag those, those are stock seed. And, um, and then again, when um, the patch has completely matured and the first frost has taken out all the vines, we go through the patch again looking for the shape, the perfect shape of a watermelon. So we're selecting for earliness and also for good watermelon shape. Okay. Good, poll- good pollination, good production. And then also um, as we're eating melons during the season, saving the seed from the ones that taste the best. So, um, (laughs) so you've got to be really careful where you spit the watermelon seeds on your farm, right? Oh, they all get saved. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All the watermelon seed gets saved. But, um, and, and our squash is very similar. Um, squash is, is very much like the onions. We go through the patch, we pick, the, at, at the end of the season, when the vines have dried down, we go through and we pick the very best squash and we put all of that in the garage and we let it cure in the garage for about a month. Then we haul it down into the basement and that is the squash that we'll be eating all, all winter. And all winter long, we, um, you know, as you're cooking up the squash, you're tasting each one of them. And you're deciding if it tastes good enough and if the texture is nice and smooth and if it has a nice deep orange color. And you rate each squash on those three qualities and you only save the seed from the very best ones. So, so are you guys like sitting there with scorecards at meals? We used to do that. We've gotten better <laughs> at it now that we, we just know if this is good or not good. But when my first experience with this, I... Um, came to visit Dan's family for the first time in the fall of the year. It was, it was about October, might've been beginning of November. And, um, we sat down to a meal and they were serving squash. 
I, I did not grow up eating squash. I thought I hated squash. I was like, oh my gosh, you mean I have to taste this stuff? I don't want any. <laughs> and yeah. not only did we have to eat the squash, but we had to, we had scorecards by each one of our plates was a scorecard and you had to rate it for those three things, flavor, texture, and color. And they would put everybody's scorecard who, who took part of that squash and scored that squash and put it in the pie tin with a seed that had been removed and cleaned and was now drying in this pie tin. So all the scorecards. So there were pie tins laying all over the house with <laughs> scorecards in them. And so that was my first experience with, oh, my gosh, this is different. <laughs> and, and so, the, the, OK, that's like the ultimate Midwest, uh, the Midwest thing, like this is different. <laughs> you know? um, OK, so but, but you were did you like the squash? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I I was so surprised because my experience with squash was, you know, the bland um, tasting squash. The I mean, a pretty generic squash flavor, right? This was sweet and just I like no squash I'd ever tasted before. And this was long before long before Prairie Road Organic Farm had a seed company. This right. was just being right. done as a, as, as a, this was as a side Tom project. <laughs> I love it. I love it was it. a squash that he had bred and he was doing the selection work on it. And everybody who ate the squash had to participate. <laughs> that's just so great. I just, I think that's fantastic. And, and talk about, I mean, really getting down to what it's all about, right. Right. Is, yep. is, is sitting around the table. It's, it's not about being out in the field and trying to, you know, trying to take bricks readings about, you know, how much sugar is in this squash. It really is about how does this taste and what's the texture like? And, you know, and does our brother's girlfriend like the squash? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, a, exactly. what a perfect selection criteria. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's why I, I, when I tell people our story, you know, most of the varieties were not, you know, they weren't, they were selected for our garden, you know, and selected for our own table. And it had to be, had to taste good and perform well agronomically. And one of the things that David likes to say is it has to be beautiful. (laughs) So, you know, how many seed companies is that the criteria other than flowers, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. That's just so great. Now tell me just a little bit about the, about put, put the seed company in context with the farm. Cause you've got, you said you have 30 acres that are set aside for doing that are, are where you produce your seed. Mm-hmm. 10 acres that is actually in any given year is in seed, but you've got a 400 acre farm with a lot of small grains production going on. Is the, I mean, economically, the seed company is a major part of what you do there, right? Right. Yeah. And um, so when, Earlier on, I told you when when Dan and I came back to the farm, our enterprise was going to be the turkeys and and David's enterprise was the small grains. And um, so when we lost the turkey production, we had to come up with another enterprise that would be Dan and mine. And and David has continued to do the small grains. So when we were um, contracting with other seed companies, um, that was the, the income stream for our family. And, and David's income stream was the small grains. And that's, that's how it's continued. And um, so at this point in time, David grows 
buckwheat, triticale, um, a gray proso millet, um, and some oats. And um, our our thinking is that as he um, with the, with this small grain production is that we're going to start offering um, more of his production um, through our seed company, both for grain production, but also as cover crop seed. So all of those crops right. have value as cover crop seed as well. So, um, you know, the idea is to not only sell seed of our, our vegetable production, but also our small grain production. Um, there's a lot more interest in locally grown grains, um, as well as you, as you know, with, with cover crop seeds. So, um, we think there's some real potential there and, um, just would add value to, um, the, the marketing of the small grains and, um, give us more control of that marketing as well. That's great. That's great. Well, Teresa, I'd like to, I'd like to turn now and, and go to the, the three questions that we like to ask our guests at the end of the show. Um, and, and, uh, one of the, one, one thing I try to ask everybody that we get on the, on the show is, is what is your favorite tool on the farm? Well, I would be remiss if I said anything other than the hoe <laughs> for two reasons. Um, when when I first came back to the farm, it was emphasized to me that the hoe was the most important tool on the farm. And that, um, you know, the garden was, like, like I said, the yardstick for sustainability and um, for the rest, you know, the management of the rest of the farm. And... You know, one of the most important tools for us has always been the hoe and doing that weed control. Not so much just for the absolute weed control, but the other thing that the hoe does is make you get out there and walk your fields. And the just that exercise and the observation that goes with carrying a hoe over your land Um and that's that's just a very very powerful tool. It's another way of of saying you know the most important fertilizer is the farmer's footsteps. Um, you know it's just another another take on that. And the other reason why I say that is because Dan actually makes the hose. <laughs> and, oh really? Yeah, he's um he's very he's very mechanically inclined and um it does really well with the welder but um he has he likes to recycle things and so he takes um spent disc blades and um cuts them down and makes hose out of them so um the fact that he made my hoe just makes it that much more special. <laughs> That's really great. I love that. And, and are those hoes available? I mean, is this something that, that people can purchase commercially or do only very special people get to have a hoe? <laughs> well, so far only very special people have one of Dan's hoes, but I've told him for years that, um, he, that's part of what he needs to do over the winter. But now we're so busy packing seed, he doesn't have as much time to make hoes during the winter. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that was one of the surprises with starting a seed enterprise is, um, you know, that, that we go right from 
harvest um, and cleaning seed into marketing. And then we're still marketing seed. You know, April and May are, are still busy seed months. selling yeah. seed, um, months. And and yet we're already into starting seeds and, you know, working for next year's production. So we go year round now. And then, of course, the bookkeeping. <laughs> you know, right. I, I've never been... Um, a, a really good record keeper. It's something that I've had to cultivate. I have to work really hard at. And when we started our seed business, um, um, you know, one of the things I obsessed about was was keeping really meticulous records of of customers and and our um, sales, but also um, paying a lot of attention to how much time we put into crop in terms of production and variety maintenance work and selection work and so forth. So um, I've become a meticulous record keeper because it, it's just so important with seed production to to keep those records and, and know what's going on with those individual varieties. And and then, of course, the, the selection work and the progress that you're making on particular varieties and just even taking pictures. Dakota Black Pop, for instance, we have pictures when we first started working with that variety. And it used to be that the kernels were very sharp and almost pointed. And some of them were actually the cobs were painful to pick because they were razor sharp. And so we began selecting for nice, smooth, round kernels. And so we have we have pictures and records from years ago when we first started working with it to where we are at now and the nice, smooth, round kernels. And part of the reason why you want that is those sharp points are weak points. So when you go to pop the popcorn, that's where when it starts to heat up, that's the weak point and it'll pop prematurely. Whereas if you have a nice, smooth kernel with no point, that's the weak point, it'll heat up hotter and pop bigger and fluffier. So um, those records, and including photographs, are are extremely important. Is there is there a particular tool that you you found that you really like for doing the for collating the records and and for managing your customers? No, but I sure would like. Um, other people's input on that. Um, <laughs> I'm still working on trying to reduce the amount of duplication, um, you know, in terms of, of keeping records, um, entering people, uh, customers, for instance, and, and sales into, into QuickBooks and being able to um, have an online store and have all of that automatically go into your um your bookkeeping and your in your customer um, list and so forth, um, and have that be collated with inventory. Those are that's my goal. <laughs> and I think those so are really I'm in, big just challenges. In the research process of that. Well, and I think those are really big challenges on a small farm. Is is kind of that those pieces of of this software does this sort of okay. Mm-hmm. And, and then how do we get the different pieces, the different elements to talk to each other? Right. In to integrate ways? that. 
So, yeah, yeah, interestingly enough, I was just reading an article in in Forbes magazine talking about that very thing about small businesses and entrepreneurs and and these new apps that are supposed to help you integrate those different aspects of your business. And so... um, yeah, if I find something useful, I would be happy to share, but I'm still very much in the research stage and kind of fumbling around in the dark. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Unfortunately. So, so yeah, if, if we can help each other share that information, I, I'm more than happy to um, share with people whatever I, whatever I come up with. Well, if you if you find any solutions, Teresa, let me know, and we'll we'll put a footnote on the show notes uh, for the episode here. So, uh, so okay. So now you you grow a lot of different things, from small grains to vegetables on your farm. So if if you had to pick if you had to pick one thing, what what is your favorite? What's my favorite? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm kind of a tomato fiend, and if you look at our offerings, um, the majority of varieties that we offer are tomatoes, and that's not that's not um, it's largely due to me because I just have such a passion for tomatoes. Um, and my favorite tomato, I would have to say, is Dakota Sport. Um, it was a variety that we released from our farm. It's unique to our farm. I don't think any other seed company currently offers it. And the reason why it's a favorite is, um, well, first of all, it's a sport out of Crimson Sprinter. So Crimson Sprinter is an heirloom variety that David got from a Seed Savers member. She was an elderly woman who um, she was the only person that she knew of that still had Crimson Sprinter. It was no longer commercially available. She was looking for somebody to adopt it, and David took it on. And he did a lot of selection work on it um, in terms of blossom and rot and disease resistance. And um, we had it planted in our disease nursery. And what that is, is we have a strip in our garden that's been planted to, to tomatoes season after season after season. So we plant our tomatoes for um, stock seed in this disease nursery and then um, select the tomatoes that from the plants that are most disease resistant. So looking for that disease resistance and selecting for that. And we're not sure if it was the pressure from the amount of disease that was in that, but there was a mutation called a sport where one arm of the tomato plant is a completely different looking tomato. So this is one of the uh, adaptation mechanisms that tomatoes have. And if it's put under stress, um, it'll, it'll do this sport. And um, very shiny tomato, almost looked like it had been waxed, bright, bright candy apple red, much redder than its parent Crimson Sprinter. So we noticed it right away and we picked it and tasted it and it's, it's just absolutely fabulous. It's got a really thin skin, but the skin is almost as elastic as, as it is shiny, kind of like that plastic fruit that women used to have on their tables in the 60s and 70s. Right. That's right. It, it, looks, <laughs> it looks like it's waxed, right? And, um, but it doesn't crack when it rains. And so 
crack resistant, very thin skinned. It's the skin is not the last thing in your mouth like most tomatoes. It's just a fabulous eating tomato. Not so good as a market tomato because it's very tender. So the skin is thin, so you know, you can as a market grower you can translate that to how careful you have to handle right. it. So it's gonna crack if you look at it funny. Well, it'll bruise. It won't crack. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it'll you know, you'll get those little handling spots little- on them, I'll call them. Right. And right. So we had one market grower come up to us. Um, we do a, a, a winter show called the Holiday Showcase here in North Dakota. It's part of their Pride of Dakota program. We had a market grower come up to us and say, I just love your Dakota Sport tomato. We're like, really? You're a market grower and you love it? We, we tell market growers, maybe you don't want to grow this one. She goes, oh, no. She said, I handle it really, really carefully, and I put it front and center on my table. She said, it's like the irresistible apple on Cinderella. People flock to that table because they have to see what that bright, shiny tomato is. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. (laughs) And she said, so people come to their booth first to to get that tomato because they know it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be in short supply and they better come and get it because nobody else has it. Right. right. So Dakota Sport is my favorite. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's your, that's your vegetable for a desert Island, huh? Yep. That's the one you take with you. Now, I just, I, I, I want to pivot back to something that you just, that you just mentioned that what you called the disease nursery mm-hmm. and this idea of, of not just breed, you know, I think so often breeding programs are focused on, well, let's breed for late, right, late, bright resistance, or let's breed for resistance to the root, not ne- root, not nematodes. Mm-hmm. But you guys are just saying, let's breed for resistance to everything. Right. We And, and this was a tip given to us by, by John Navazio. Um, and we, we were also working with Steve Peters. And I continue to work with Steve um, through the Family Farmer Seed Cooperative, which we're members of. And um, John Navazio used to work for Organic Seed Alliance. He now works for Johnny's Selected Seeds. So, um, but Organic Seed Alliance is, is one of my go-to resources when I have questions as a seed producer. They're just an amazing resource. And, um, but John used to work for them. And one of the things that he told us, you know, we were, we were interested in improving Crimson Sprinter, especially for um, a disease, a bacterial spot disease. And so, um, he told us, well, create a disease nursery and intentionally um, have an environment where you know disease is present and then you can do the selection work within that environment. And you have to challenge the plant um, and in order to tell which plants you know, have more resistance to whatever diseases you're dealing with. And so, yeah, we, we weren't specifically cultivating a single disease, but, you know, this is the package of disease pressures that we experience with, that we experience here in our um, environment trying to grow tomatoes. So you just keep planting, you know, you break all the rules and you just create this environment where you're planting tomato on tomato on tomato, never removing any of the refuse, leaving it all there. So it's just, you know, this very disease infested environment. 
And, you know, we were making quite a bit of progress and we were wondering how much disease pressure we actually had in our disease nursery because our plants were looking really good in there. And I did um, a variety trial with a number of other growers where we um, were looking in um, the USDA germplasm collection for varieties that either had been bred by North Dakota State University. Um, they shut down their plant breeding program in 1990, but they have a whole list of varieties that had been released from NDSU prior to that. Right. And we also um, looked to the Oscar Will and Company Seed Catalog, which was a seed company based in North Dakota from the 1890s through 1960. So we're looking at what varieties did he carry, what varieties did he trial in his gardens in Bismarck, North Dakota, what did he find worthy to offer. And so um, two other farmers and I did this variety trial where we were growing out 10, 10 varieties each over the course of two years. So we were trialing 60 varieties that had either been bred or we knew historically had been grown in North Dakota. And it was, we had started these tomato plants. I was interested in trialing tomatoes, surprise, surprise. And um, <laughs> they were a late addition to our plantings, and so the only space we had left was in the disease nursery. So I planted these poor tomatoes in our disease nursery and found out they were not very disease resistant. <laughs> so found out right. just how much disease was in that nursery because these varieties had absolutely no resistance to them whatsoever. It was an acid test, really. Um, they they lost all their leaves. They barely produced anything. I have pictures of them. They just look horribly hopeless. So um, that's how we knew we were really making some progress in terms of disease resistance in the tomato varieties that we were working with. So... <laughs> That's great. Well, and I think it's just such I think it's such a powerful technique to really be to be breeding for that worst possible of environments without without focusing on one trait, but saying, you know, what is it that's going to allow this tomato or this this barley or this millet to produce through time, no matter what gets thrown at it, rather right. than just saying, well, okay, this it's resistance to, you know, race three of 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 Fusarium or, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Right. You know, you know to, and to that's where, um, you know, so, so let's say we're breeding for Septoria resistance, you know, um, the strains of Septoria that we have here in North Dakota might be different from what you even have in Iowa, you know? Um, right. So it, it may or may not translate when you move it that far. And so that's why it's so important to, to, to be breeding for ecological niches because, you know, we just know that um, each environment has its own disease pressures. Right. And I think breeding for, for those ecological niches, but also breeding just for that, 
that generalized overall toughness, right. you know, yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously one thing to, to, to know how to, you know, to know how to drive one kind of tractor really well, but if you really want to survive as a farmer, you better know how to do a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be, a, you need to be a generalist. And I think there's certainly an argument for having plants that are selected to be, to be generalists in terms of their, you know, generally disease resistant rather than just resistant to this one or two things. Absolutely. So. Yep. Yep, we need right. the whole package. So, Teresa, if if you could go back in time and tell, and, and I, I usually ask this to your beginning farmer self, but in a, in a way, I think you didn't really have a beginning farmer self because you sort of landed, you grew up on a farm and then you landed back on a farm. But if you could go back and tell your yourself when you were getting started on the, as part of the Podol family farm, uh, one thing, what would you go back and tell yourself? I would tell myself to be more courageous, um, to be, um, there's, there's a place for caution. And, um, we, we talked, um, during the program about, you know, trialing things and making sure you know what you're getting into and you understand, um, the risks and benefits, you know, just even in selecting varieties and so forth to do the trialing. But once you do the trialing and, um, and and you know what direction you want to go in go for it don't don't let anything hold you back don't be you know overly cautious um and top order of the day is to have fun doing it yeah we we really love what we do well, and it's it's pretty easy to imagine you guys all sitting around the table smiling while you're fin- filling out your scorecards. <laughs> you know, yeah, and the, tasting that next melon. <laughs> that's right. Great. Yeah. All right. All right. Teresa, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much. Likewise. Likewise. This is, this is, this is great. Listeners, if you don't already know, you can find links to the things we mentioned. There were quite a few things that came up at the end today. Um, we'll try to get all of those linked in our show notes at farmer to farmer com, And you can just go there and search for Podol, which is P O D O L L. And, and this episode should pop right up. Teresa, thank you so much for generously sharing your time and your expertise with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 11 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Podol, P-O-D-O-L-L. Thank you so much to everyone who has taken time to leave a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you like the podcast, One of the best ways to support us is to make a comment on iTunes or Stitcher. The more fresh comments we get, the higher it drives the show in the ratings, which really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches because it creates the opportunity for people to stumble on it rather than having to go searching for it. I've also been getting lately some great feedback about the weekly newsletter that I put out, the Flying Rutabaga. Um, You know, we've covered everything in, in recent recent issues of the newsletter from how to water your greenhouse to how to have a good relationship to your lender. You can sign up on my website, purplepitchfork.com or the podcast website, farmer to farmer podcast.com. And we'll drop that email into your inbox every Thursday morning. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you've got. What, how, how can we help you? 
Okay. What could we, what, what questions might my guests or I be able to answer in the podcast? What sort of topics would you like for us to cover? Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmer to farmer podcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug as a way of saying thanks. Okay, now I know there's a button here somewhere. Yep, oh, there. 